Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Unspoken Words. I'm here today with Alex Collins. She's also a former patient and a communicant counselor and a future PsyD, doctor of psychology. <laughs> Hi, Alex. Hi, Dr. E. It's good to be back. Great. I love doing this with you. Um, it's holiday time, and it's supposed to be such a fun, joyous time. But we know for children and teens with selective mutism, the preparation for social events, school performances, parties, changes in routines, visiting with countless relatives and friends can be quite anxiety provoking for our kids and teens. So today we're going to go over some tips and strategies that parents can use at home and can share with teachers for the real world, et cetera, et cetera. It's always endless with us, but we'll try to keep it somewhat short. <laughs> but you know me, Alex, I can just go on and on. <laughs> so um, I figured you'd start. You had a couple questions. Some readers or listeners sent in some questions to us um, to how to get started with this. So let's go. What do you have to ask me today, Alex? <laughs> Well, first, um, I thought we could start off with what can you do to help prepare your child or teen for the social interaction that comes with the holiday season? Yeah, I think the first thing that parents need to do is have an idea of what that child's baseline stage on the social communication bridge is and what they might be working towards as they're progressing across the bridge and not to have unrealistic expectations. So I think that's, you know, really important. I think our children and teens do best when they know what's going to be happening, who they're going to see, where they're going, when they're going. That old know what, when, and where helps gain control, gives a child control, gives an individual the sense of, you know, being okay because they know what's happening. It's the unpreparedness that can create a lot of anxiety. So one way to help prepare um, children for um, the holidays and so forth is to kind of talk about what's going to be going on, what's happening, who are they going to see, what are they going to be doing. Um, that's really the number one thing that we can do to help them. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it kind of reminds me of making action plans so we can just plan ahead um, for whatever situation we're going to be in. I feel like that applies a lot to the holidays. Right. So there's a great SCAT strategy, right? We have sandwich questions as little guys where you sandwich the top and the bottom with a greeting. Hi, bye. Right. Hi. How are you? Or bye. Have a great day. See you later. And then in between are the questions that people can ask and what those answers are. So with the little guys at camp and um, and also in session individually, we're working on preparing for different social situations, whether it's visiting with a relative or relatives, going to a party, going into a store, what kinds of questions can they ask? And as children age, we transition to action plans. Who's going to be there? What can they ask? What's your answer? What can you ask? And of course, respecting the stage on the bridge. And what does that mean? It means that if you have a child that is a mute child that's not yet engaging, we're going to be focused on engaging strategies. And we can talk more about that in a little bit, but I think it's really important to really kind of be fun and upbeat, not worried and scared. A lot of parents will voice, I'm really nervous about the holidays. I'm really nervous about when we go to our aunts and uncles' houses and things like that. Um, so it's really about being upbeat and positive 
with your child, seeing things in a positive way. But for the individuals that we might see over the holidays, it's really good to educate them. Um, and we do that through the About My Child worksheet and um, really giving them a heads up of what to, how to engage and interact with your child, with the child and so forth. Yeah, definitely. Our next question about the holidays was how should parents communicate effectively with their relatives about their child or team with SM? So I think you kind of just introduced that topic a little bit. Yeah, I think that about my child worksheet is wonderful. It kind of tells others how to engage, whether it's focusing on others first, like siblings first, focus on the family uh, in general, instead of going right up and, you know, trying to get the child to quote unquote talk. Um, you know, how do you ask questions? I mean, one thing we tell families is make sure when you're visiting people and you're going out and about or people are coming over that you have what we call a bag of props, things your child can have or to a focus, you know, the older the child, they're not going to have like a bag of toys or something, but they may have recently gone on a trip or a field trip and maybe the relative has some warning of things they can ask the child, like common questions. But for the younger child, having a bag of things that a relative can focus on um, and asking choice or direct questions regarding that object or toy or their, um, and also avoiding direct eye contact, you know, not staring the child down, but focusing on the tasks that they're doing or the toy that they're looking at or that they're baking cookies, looking at that, giving time for the child to respond, even for our verbal children, just that kind of five to 10 second wait time, avoiding eye contact and not asking you know, questions right away after that. Just give some time. If you forget and ask an open-ended, thought-provoking question and the child doesn't respond, sometimes it's just re-asking it as a choice um, with the right answer second. So they hear that. Also, at the same time, parents are educated, hopefully, on how to bring their child into these social and communication challenges, so like visiting with relatives, so that if an aunt or an uncle or a family friends ask an open-ended, thought-provoking question and the child's not able to answer, we train parents on how do you bring your child into that encounter, whether it's asking, re-asking as a choice, leaning in with a tell-me approach, or just re-asking as a choice and the child can naturally answer. We always opt for verbal first. We never promote nonverbal. So respecting and knowing the baseline stage is important, but parents just asking choices to bring them in is a great way to kind of help the child into the social communication opportunity without, you know, forcing them to speak whole sentences and open-ended thought-provoking responses. Yeah, I especially like the advice about focusing on other people in the room or other things in the room first. Um, I definitely remember as a kid being in those big family environments during the holidays and being very overwhelmed. So I definitely found it helpful to focus on other people first. For sure. And to try to get places early, like instead of being the last one to arrive to a party or a function, be the first one to arrive. Um, also, you know, instead of being in the hubbub of the group, you know, that concept comfort precedes communication, progress doesn't happen in a group. Some really great things are hang out a little in the kitchen or away from the full group and the section of the room instead of in the midst of everybody. It's really hard. And if you're a young, 
if you have a young child, I mean, looking up at all these big people with gifts and things can be very, very overwhelming and loud and large. And as we know, we have very sensitive uh, kids, very sensitive individuals that we work with. So louder, larger, lots of people environments can really shut our kids down. So we want to be very cognizant of that. And again, going back to educating others on how to question and when to question and, and not to push. Um, I think that's really important. And I would say that it's really important that parents allow their kids to warm up in a setting. I mean, a lot of parents will seem to have an agenda that right away, I want my child to talk and greet and do the hi by yes, no, and thanks type big five words. And I'm like, hey, just get there. Let your child acclimate. Notice their body language. Do they look comfortable? Do they seem okay? Don't just push them into, you know, communication right away. Let them just be. I mean, I do encourage frontline handing and taking. So gently, you know, for a child, like encouraging handing and taking, giving a gift, taking a gift, giving cookies, taking cookies, you know, whatever it might be, handing their coat over to somebody else or taking a coat if they're at your house. It, that kind of engaging of handing and taking is a great way to stimulate social communication without even having an expectation for speech. And again, we do things like the high buy game, like young children, you know, the high buy copy game. Someone says hi, you can just, you know, start with the waving if they're if that's where they need to start. But a lot of our children can progress into, you know, copy back. Someone says hi, you say hi or try to see how many people you can say hi first to. I mean, all of these different types of strategies are personalized to the child or the individual. It's not about what one works for one will work for another. And every strategy we have can be adapted to where they are on the bridge. And I think it's really important. We're never trying to keep a child nonverbal. We're trying to promote verbal communication, but it's about also respecting the child's comfort. And if they're not able to be verbal, why would we push it and make them feel bad? We need to understand and at least bridge down into either the use of an intermediary or the use of just handing taking for a while. Um, and then there's, of course, contrived strategies that we can use in terms of if they're baking cookies for a family gathering or bringing cookies for a family gathering where we can bring them into communication through just, do you want to, you know, hand the cookies over or do you want to hand your coat over? Just giving them opportunities to make choices for themselves rather than telling them all the time what to do. Yeah, I'm really glad that you um, emphasize the importance of understanding where the child or teen is on the bridge first and understanding the golden rules um, that we've talked about previously on the podcast, too, and how that really applies to everything. But we can really use that in application to um, this holiday episode. Yeah. And when we talk about the golden rules, knowing comfort precedes communication, right? So if your child is going somewhere and they don't have a connection, especially having had COVID, I mean, a lot of these kids may not have seen people for many years and may never have even met some of these people other than maybe through FaceTime or Zoom. And so going into a place where you don't even have a connection yet can be very anxiety provoking. This is one reason why if your child doesn't really know the individuals that they're going to see, such as parties and gatherings, um, it might not be a bad idea to show them pictures, to even FaceTime or Zoom, um, to meet these other individuals in a fun way, to even just show the present, like different things um, to meet them that way. So at least they see them first. 
Um, I've even played I spy. So seeing pictures and maybe I spying who they're going to see there. And then all of a sudden the child's focused on looking for certain people rather than shutting down as soon as they see someone. So I think that's important. Understanding comfort precedes communication. And again, we talked about progress doesn't happen in a group. So away from the group type activities um, and the importance of social engagement. I mean, too often, Alex, we hear and we see this at Communicamp a lot with parents where it's about talk, talk, talk and families that come in for our individual programs. It's how do I get my child to talk? I really need them to talk. But if they really think about the bridge, there's more than just not talking. There's different stages of social communication. And I think it's important to know the importance of social engagement, which is the precursor to social communication. And we have prior episodes of um, Unspoken Words podcast where we go into depth about the bridge and, and so forth and the whys, of course. But really taking that into account, simple act of handing, taking, frontline, all of that is very important that parents involve the children. You know, when I talk to parents and we're kind of having like a whole discussion about their child's social communication, nine out of 10 families will tell me, you know what, I realize I talk for my child all the time and it's because they don't talk and I feel embarrassed. So I think it's really important that parents kind of let that go a little bit and realize, hey, this is my child and I can't be, I don't want to be embarrassed about this. I need to understand what is my child's baseline where I can start working from to bridge them up and be okay with it. I mean, once the parents are okay with it and understanding how to bridge up and down, all of a sudden their own anxiety lowers. So that importance of social engagement is very important and will benefit all children and teens, even if they're verbal. It's that kind of way to engage, you know, involve them. Also, you know, demystification, again, like talking to your child, not being afraid to discuss their anxieties or in younger children, their scaries or for older kids, it being hard or scary to interact or communicate with others, just kind of talking about and respecting their feelings. And just if you notice they're comfortable stating, hey, you seem more comfortable with that or that seemed a little hard there. And you know, maybe we could have done it this way and really talking to them. I mean, how often do we meet parents that don't talk to their children about it or they've seen therapists where the therapist never, ever, ever, ever talks to the child about their feelings towards this? I mean, they know they don't talk. And I think once kids are very aware of their scaries or their social communication and the bridge, all of a sudden their anxiety goes down because they understand. And once they understand that, again, is very anxiety lowering for them. It gives them that sense of control. And I can't emphasize enough how over the holidays is such a great time to practice question asking and answering. Answering, of course, is easier because it's responding than asking. But having opportunities to do all sorts of kind of fun question answering, you know, we use like holiday knock-knock jokes, holiday trivia questions, holiday anything questions, um, anything to do with question answers through games, through peers, um, cousins getting together and doing some fun games, some goofy games, using humor with questions, asking and answering. And that goes to things like common questions, right, Alex? We do those at camp. Mm -hmm. All the time. All the time where we're trying to help children minimize their need to think and process by trying to figure out what questions people can ask them. 
So doing questions answers where it's scripted is one thing, but it's another to be prepared for questions that come to them. What kind of questions will your aunts and uncles ask you? What kind of questions can store clerks ask you over the holidays? What kind of questions are there? And common questions are, what are you going to do for Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever holiday you're celebrating? Are you going away? Are you staying home? Where are you going if you're going away? So getting ready for that. If you're at Thanksgiving, kind of talking about, you know, what kind of questions that family members are going to ask. If they haven't seen the child in a while, it might be, what grade are you in? What school do you go to? What's your teacher's name? Are you doing any sports? Again, it's about helping prepare kids for these encounters. And that's where common questions, greetings come in through sandwich questions and action plans and really helping them with these various strategies while respecting them, respecting their stage on the bridge. Yeah, I love that. And I especially love the emphasis on for this particular episode, how progress doesn't happen in a group. Because I know that, at least for my holidays, a lot of the times the environment was always loud, large, and lots of people. Um, So there's no way I was going to make progress during the holidays um, or with any of my relatives that I wouldn't see very often. So I think it's a really good thing to keep in mind that we can always bridge down. And in those scenarios where it is loud, large, and lots of people, um, it can also be just important to focus on comfort and how it will proceed that communication yeah definitely and those are great points and one thing that would help is giving children I call it the big shot role right giving them some sort of role where they're in charge so if they bake the cookies they're handing over the cookies Um, if they helping to set the table if it's at your own home being in charge of taking coats giving them this big shot role where they're in charge even if they have a younger sibling being in charge of their younger sibling during the social encounter. It's much easier to answer questions about their sibling than it is themselves, right? That's a social anxiety trait, (laughs) not really feeling comfortable talking about themselves. So I think all of that is, you know, just little tidbits and things that I think can help families get prepared for the holidays. And again, um, maybe being in charge of some of the younger cousins at some of these family gatherings, right? Like, they can take, bring a game, bring some activities where they can show people how to do it. And for those that are verbal, can read the directions or explain how to do an activity. I love the activity of baking holiday cookies during a holiday party with a couple people because then those people can engage over, again, a task. I think that's a great thing rather than just eye-to-eye contact. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of this um, plays in to... The next question, which was how should parents and their child approach a holiday party at school? Yeah, I mean, it's very similar with that, um, with the school. I mean, that can be really upset, you know, upsetting. I remember with my own child, Sophie, school parties were the hardest thing for her because not only were the kids there in the group, which is a classroom, but the parents and not just the parents, but the siblings. So you could have a class with 15 kids with you know, three, three people per kid, and you've got a room full of 60 kids, or 60 people, sorry, and it's just filled and very overwhelming. Um, I never want to say let your child miss the day in school, but it is hard to have that if your child gets very shut down and anxious, especially for younger children. You know, again, it's allowing your child to be with you more in that situation. It's kind of like going to just a birthday party in general. It's allow your child to be near you, 
too often parents are like wanting the child to separate. All the other kids are separated. Mine's not. If you push your child too quickly, it's going to cause them to be more anxious. So allow them to kind of hang with you a little. That's okay. And maybe if you do have a younger sibling, they're kind of with their sibling or an older sibling takes them around the room. It's allowing them to feel comfortable and sit on your lap if that's what gets them through that situation. That's not where you want to push strategies in the middle of a group of 60 people in a small room. That's when you're okay to be there and just acclimate. And, of course, if someone asks a question, knowing how to bring them into that encounter and letting them have a buddy, like sitting with a buddy, being paired with a buddy. You know, if they're in a school party in a classroom, having a buddy with them, if they're if they're okay and comfortable enough to hand things out, they have a buddy or two. So they're in a group rather than being isolated. And I don't recommend teachers isolate kids out. A lot of times there's different roles that someone has at that party or maybe they're doing like a show in the room. But maybe this particular child, the child with SM, has a more non-speaking part, just being there. You know, um, some kids can speak fine if they're reading a script. So it's really everyone that's Every child or every individual is different, so it's about what they can, they can, you know, certainly tolerate. Um, giving them a focus during any of those encounters is important as well, rather than feeling, um, you know, overwhelmed that questions are going to come to them, but giving them a role in that. Maybe they're doing the art project and they're in charge of a specific art project. Some kids can do great with having that leadership role. Other children during a party or a gathering might feel overwhelmed. What were you like in that situation when you were in a school party? Could you have taken that leadership role with a friend if it was nonverbal? Yeah, maybe maybe with a friend and definitely nonverbal. Um, I always got really excited for school parties, um, but would then get very nervous when it actually arrived. And I think I probably bridged down, too, at the time just because we had parents unfamiliar parents in the room and there were so many people a lot of the time so it got overwhelming so I usually preferred to stick with my parent if they were able to come with me or with one of my close buddies that I had in the classroom definitely. Yeah I, I remember you when you were little and I think having like multiple siblings also probably helped you because you didn't have to feel so alone in that buddy process for you, of course, was very important as it is for all kids. But I think you, because of the number of siblings you had, also felt much more comfortable with your like siblings if they had come to to a party. But I think these are all important things to know. Um, and what a child can do in a small group and away from the group is going to be different than what they're going to do in a filled classroom with a bunch of people. And then you need to be OK with that they're still brave showing up, right? And as long as you know their baseline and you're moving towards the next level by the way you're questioning, you know, it, it that works. And sometimes children surprise you um, as soon as parents start bringing them into social communication opportunities, as soon as teachers start asking questions the right way, the way they might prompt a write and read or just a script approach, the child might be verbal with just that. So it's really interesting how we enable their lack of social communication. So just the simple educating of others of how to bring the child into the social communication encounter may be just enough to get them to at least be responsive. And sometimes initiation comes through planning that through action plans and so forth, but also through scripted questions and answers. 
asking and answering questions. That that also helps them learn that skill to initiate as well. I love that you said they're still brave showing up. I think that's really important to emphasize. Yeah, I do. I think it's important because if you think about the bridge and and you know that I view it with stages and verbal, of course, is what we want and of course is where we want to go. And all of our research shows they they get there and they get there pretty quickly if you respect their baseline. It's when we push to speak too quickly and children are shutting down and becoming avoidant. And then we get the avoidant child, the one that's a speech phobic where they're stuck in the nonverbal. I have never, ever met a speech phobic. Those are the subset of SM kids that are like professional minds. They're comfortable with people, but they're stuck in the nonverbal. I've never, ever met a child like that that didn't have a push to speak before they were ready. So if we're working, if a family's working with a treatment professional and it's all about talking without understanding the stages of social communication, or at least how to like be nonverbal comfortably and respecting this child's comfort level and their own feelings, I think that's a problem. And that's what we see at our center. We see so many kids that have been pushed to speak when they weren't ready. And a really knowledgeable clinician with SM knows that. So it's really important if your child is seeing a therapist that you feel comfortable as a parent with the approach and that it makes sense to you because in your gut of guts as parents, you know what feels right and you know what's right. Yeah, absolutely. That's great advice. Um, So we have one more question to finish out this holiday episode. So during the holidays, many familiar locations become increasingly loud and crowded. How can a parent help their child or teen gain comfortability in this changing environment? You mean like real world settings? Yeah. Well, I think it's, again, becoming being prepared, knowing where you're going, when you're going, working with your treatment professional on what those goals will be. For us, you know, we like to have, you know, the goals of what they're going to be working on are the games for younger children, right? So if they're working on handing or taking, if they're like having a motivated interest in something. So this is a great opportunity for our kids to practice their social communication when they're out and about in public settings like stores, because they're buying things, right? They're buying gifts Mm -hmm. for grandma and grandpa or their cousins or their siblings and having the, kind of script approach, let's say parents approaching a store clerk and saying, excuse me, can you help us? And turning to their child and saying, on our list, are we looking for this? Are we looking for that? To bring them in, not just a basic way of bringing them into the social communication opportunity, but really training parents on how to engage the children. And for teens, it's really about giving them that motivation and the know-how of how to approach a store clerk to ask questions but also to work on greetings, you know, hello, how, you know, when someone says, hello, can I help you? What is your answer to that? Is it just ignore them or are you able to respond? Does a parent need to bring you into that encounter? It's really that knowledge of where that child or teen is on the bridge and how to bring them in. And I think it's really important that scripts can't be emphasized enough. When you get nervous and you have a script, it makes it a lot easier So approaching store clerks, asking for things, if you're going to have play dates, like you might have a month, you know, of school break, maybe three weeks. It's a great time to continue play dates, get togethers with friends. Don't forget that. Right. So having a couple friends over, having a movie night, making holiday cookies, doing a holiday scavenger hunt in the backyard for younger kids um, and for teens, you know, opportunities to 
Again, bake is a great one, doing art projects, holiday art projects, and using those opportunities to for social communication. I always tell parents that when they're working with playdates or get-togethers and if they're facilitating the situation, they should always focus on the other child first, not the child with SM. One that minimizes their sense of expectation, which is a really big thing when you focus on others first. And it gives the child a sense, a, a time to kind of get, like, kind of process what's going on. And that's why it's important that if they're going to do baking or art, that the child knows in advance what that project is and the different aspects to it. So with recipes, knowing the recipe so that they don't have to think a lot about it. Again, we want to minimize their need to think and process because the more mm -hmm. nervous you get, the harder it is to think and process. So the entire treatment plan is based on the child's individual needs as to how do you minimize that particular child's need to think and process? You know, does this child have speech and language issues, sensory issues, processing issues in general? Do they, are they bilingual and you're having a child that speaks English, but your child only speaks Spanish? It's all about understanding that child's kind of presentation so you can adapt it and provide the right interventions for that particular child. Definitely. I think all of that is wonderful advice. It's really important to be prepared and keep the child or teen in the know. Do you have anything else you want to say before we wrap up the episode? Yeah, I think one thing we didn't talk a lot about is about school performances and shows and what can that child do. There's yeah. children we work with that they don't want to be on stage. It's not even about wanting to be on stage. It's terrifying for them in the beginning. Now, I would say that it's really neat to see the evolution when we work with a family in therapy that, you know, the child might come to us and the beginning kind of presentation is helping set up and be, you know, putting the props together and doing the kind of backstage aspect, at least they're participating to the point where the child is actually singing or performing or having a part. And we see that full evolution of a child or teen going through that you know, being in the back end to being front and center. And it's really beautiful to see that evolution. But I think it's really important that we involve the child in that. Now, when they're three and four, we kind of know, right? But as a child gets older, we do need to respect their comfort and what they're comfortable, like what they're able to do. But we also need to guide them to what we think, like some children will underestimate what they can do. And we want to work with them to kind of see what we can help them get to with an with a so so I don't want to go I don't want to be part of that to hey let's talk about what you can do to be part of it because it's not a self-esteem booster to avoid a situation it's a self-esteem booster to be doing something that might be a little hard for you right being being able to do something that's not comfortable for you but yet doing it doing it at a in a way that you can accomplish so not necessarily being the singer in the show, but maybe holding a prop is a first step. Holding a sign up, being with a buddy, reading a part with a buddy rather than having a solo part. Again, I'm mentioning lots of different things because what works for one won't work for another. Um, and not to pressure kids. If they're not able to do it and you really know that's going to be a five out of five on their scary scale, why push it? Like, what's the point? Why not create a situation that's positive and gives them a sense of confidence rather than challenge them in such a way that creates more anxiety, more avoidance and more reluctance and actually just pure frustration 
you know, I've had kids in my practice where over school performances or just holidays in general, the kids are having so many behavioral problems. They're melting down. They're frustrated. They don't want to do things. And you know what, Alex, as soon as we start to have a conversation with these families, we realize their parent expectations were just so ridiculously high. They were wanting mm -hmm. these children to speak or sing and offering them prizes to speak or sing in the school performance or this. And it, in reality, that child wasn't even yet verbal with any of the peers or the teachers yet. Like some of these families just starting out, they will get there mm -hmm. just like you. Here you are leading a podcast with me, right? <laughs> I mean, all of the families that we see, all of the families that we see at our center make progress, right? They make the progress, right? It's mm -hmm. about respecting where they're at and respecting the child's feelings. I mean, we use feelings charts. We use scary charts for younger kids and zero to three numerical value or zero to five, where five is the hardest or scariest. I'm bringing this up because I can't emphasize enough that we need to respect the child's feelings in all of this, not just what we want them to do, because we need to respect the child's feelings. I would say for things like school performances, rehearsing it a lot at home, parents being upbeat and positive, not pressuring them, let them just get through it, right? In a really upbeat manner. And I think that's, you know, really, really important. I mean, holidays should be fun and exciting. And it's a great opportunity to practice social communication through sandwich questions, action plan, common questions, high buy games, big five games, interviews, trivia, you know, whatever it is, there's countless strategies. And it's about putting it all together for that individual going out and about and practicing skills and public settings, um, you know, exposures, exposures, exposures. And when you're done with exposures, more exposures. Holidays are a wonderful, motivating time for kids and teens to get out there to practice their skills. And because loud, large, lots of people environment, yes, exactly that can be so overwhelming. My recommendation is to go during off time. So if you're going to go by and do holiday shopping, Go in the, when the store opens or in the evening after dinner before it closes. I mean, that's a wonderful time to practice. So if you're going to go to the big stores like a Target or a Walmart or the mall, go during off times because that's when your child is going to feel the most comfortable doing their goals and games. Yeah, that's all really great advice. And I remember my parents and my kindergarten teacher were ecstatic when I even stood up with the group and rang my little jingle bell at our <laughs> holiday performance um, when I was five years old. So <laughs> success really is relative. And I definitely agree with all of that holiday advice. Yeah. So, you know, we have a handout that families can also read, but this was just a quick, you know, unspoken words podcast during the holiday times with Thanksgiving and you know, winter break. Um, the one thing we didn't talk about, I just want to mention briefly, is traveling. You know, a lot of families travel over the holidays, and there's something called the talkative traveler and the timid traveler. And it's interesting. I talk about that even in my summer vacation and back to school guide, because in the summer we travel. But over the holidays, we often travel too. We'll go and visit vacation spots, we'll visit aunts and uncles, we'll travel. But we'll also travel to, you know, fun places. We'll go to a beach or we'll go sightseeing somewhere. We'll travel in planes and trains and automobiles. 
So some children, when they travel, become more outgoing. Isn't that interesting? They actually talk in situations that they were mute in, and that's because of the expectation. So when they're traveling and they're more chatty, that's because they feel less of an expectation. So capitalize on that, right? Lots of exposures. Then there's the timid traveler, the more social anxiety timid traveler that they're out of their comfortable environment. And now, you know, they're in an unfamiliar place and the expectation isn't the issue there. It's the lack of comfort with the environment they're going into. So what type of child is yours? Is they, are they a timid traveler or are they a more talkative traveler? And then how do you adapt bridge up and down with that type of a traveler? Um, it's interesting because there is a lot of kids we work with, as you know, Alex, who will be mute with their best friends and they will be mute with peers they've known for a while. Right. But then they'll talk to an aunt or an uncle they haven't seen in a while, but they're mute with their grandparents who they see every week. And so that's all about expectation and that sense of expectation. And for some of those kids, that are mute with people they see all the time, they're more what we call speech phobics. And sometimes when you're a speech phobic, the use of an intermediary, the use of a script will not work. They will not speak. And that's where sounds to words or ritual sound approach comes into play. And I can't emphasize enough, that's not an isolated like treatment of SM. That is part of the whole picture that sometimes we need to use sounds to words to progress into a responsive speech. And from there, they can progress into a verbalization, but that kind of entering speech through the back door for our speech phobics is a very viable strategy that works. That's that transitional strategy of stage two of going from nonverbal to verbal. So if the child is really stuck and unable to speak with specific individuals, with those specific individuals, we develop a ritual sound approach or sounds to words approach just to bridge them into speech. It's not something we do forever. You see that at Communicamp with our kids that are mute and not speaking. As soon as you use the sounds to words approach in a very ritualistic step-by-step -step fashion, they become verbally responsive and you can get them to be initiative through initiative speech through scripts. I'm sh I mean, you see that at camp a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. And it's a very viable strategy. So I have to, emphasize that. So I think, I mean, I think we've said a lot of the basics of basic stuff that can give families, you know, some know-how of how to approach the holidays and kind of to see it in a positive way and to respect the bridge and to respect feelings and handing and taking and frontline and all of the fun different strategies that we use to help the individual become confident social communicators. Yeah, I'm glad we focused on a lot of the positive elements too, because I think so, so much of it can be intimidating and scary for the parents and the kids. So it's, it's nice to talk about those positive elements too. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, thank you very much for doing this with me. I'll see you soon. Of course. My pleasure. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much for this incredible opportunity to share my knowledge. For more information, please go to SelectiveMutismCenter.org. If you have questions on anything covered in this podcast episode, we want to answer them. Please head to SelectiveMutismCenter.org forward slash ask D-R-E. And we'll do our very best to answer them in upcoming podcast episodes, Smart Center newsletters, and on social media. Thank you.